Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in this audio going to take up Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 47. We'll finish the chapter. We're in the middle of Peter's Pentecostal sermon. In our last audio, Peter told the Jews that crucified Jesus. He told the Pentecostal crowd there, all the people that were on holiday, oh, not on holiday, but coming to see the, coming to participate in the Pentecost festival there in Jerusalem, he told them that they had delivered up Jesus according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. And he was giving them the hot gospel. And that's where we are. We start in Acts chapter 2, verses 25, 26, 27, 28. For David says of him, of Jesus, this is Peter speaking, for David says of him, Jesus, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Now, what Peter is doing here, he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I'm not going to read it because it's, it's, it says exactly the same thing except for one little part. In verse 27 in Acts 2, Peter's quoting David says, David said, the psalm said, because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your holy one to see decay. In the psalm, it was you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. I don't know what what the difference is. I don't know whether it's translation problems because Peter's quoting from the Septuagint. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The big question here is, does David know that he's prophesying of the Messiah or is David merely talking about himself when he says God, you will not leave me to death, to Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. Now, the the answer, here's the options. It could be David knew he was talking about himself, but he also knew he was talking about the future Messiah. That's one option. Or David was just talking about himself, didn't know about the future Messiah. And then Peter applied David's word to the future Messiah. Or it could be that David was just merely not referring to himself, but was referring to the future Messiah only. Now, this, the answer to this question involves a bodacious theological problem. How the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. I have just gotten on the Internet and looked at a bunch of nice, interesting articles. It's an issue that, that uh, bedevils the evangelical theologians that discuss this thing, and I have not gotten into it deeply yet to really have an opinion on this, but I do know that I've noticed, as, as anybody will notice, that the New Testament writers sort of quote willy-nilly the Old Testament in sort of haphazard, chaotic fashion, definitely not with the quotation marks and literally. So we'll, we'll look at some of the options as we go through. I'm not really going to take a stand on what, what David was thinking about uh, when he was prophesying. We do know that it was a prophecy, whether David didn't know it and then Peter used the prophecy to point out that David, inadvertently at least, prophesied about the Messiah. It, that, that we know that at least is true. Now, Adam Clark takes the position that every word of the passage in the Psalms applies to Jesus exclusively, that David was not prophesying about himself, not prophesying about himself and Jesus, but was prophesying about Jesus alone. Now, I, I don't know why he would say that. I mean, some of this stuff obviously applies to David. He says, you will not leave me in Hades, allow your Holy One to see decay. That could have been a prophecy about the end of time when the resurrection of the dead. He won't be left in death. He won't 
and he would not see decay. Assuming that a holy, and you could say holy one refers to David. He's the separated one. He's the sanctified one. The capital letters there in the Holman Christian Study Bible are not in the original. He says, my flesh will rest in hope. You have revealed the path of life to me. Why could that not refer to David himself? You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Uh, verse 25, he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Why could not David be, be talking about, I saw the Lord ever before me? Why could that be not? Why could that not refer to David seeing Yahweh ever before him? So I have trouble with Adam Clark's opinion that it applies exclusively to Jesus and not to David. In my opinion, it applies to both of them. Whether David knew it or not when he prophesied, my tendency is to think that he did know because of what Peter later says. And I'll show you when we get down there, but I honestly don't know. When he says, you will not leave me in Hades, Hades, of course, is the Greek word that means where the souls of the departed saints are. Sometimes it just means death. Sometimes it means the grave. It does not mean hell in the sense of Gehenna, with the, the, the bad place that we all know of. It just means death in general. The Old Testament saints didn't have a clear picture of hell, not as clear as Jesus painted it for us. Now, verse 28 is referring to Jesus as prophetically, you have revealed the path of life to me, then that would be Jesus as the antitype of David saying, you, God, have revealed the path of life to me, and that you, the Lord, the Father, will fill me, the Son, with gladness in your presence. Again, that depends on how you want to interpret Old Testament prophecies. We go to verse 29. Peter continues, Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. As a matter of fact, David's tomb could be seen in Jerusalem at that day, and it still contained the remains of David's body, as the NIV Study Bible says. And to make this Pentecostal sermon have a little bit more punch here, the Jews believe that David was buried on the day of Pentecost. So here we have the day of Pentecost, that's the anniversary of David's burial, and there his tomb is, and he's buried. And what Peter's point is, Jesus ain't buried. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's gone back to heaven and he was alive on this earth. We go to verse 30. Oh, first, let me back up a minute. Peter says brothers. He calls his audience, the Jews that he's preaching to, brothers. Now, they were Peter's brothers according to the flesh because they were Jews. But they were not brothers according to the spirit because they were not Christians yet. He's trying to get them converted, as John Gill points out. Now, Gill also points out that Peter is emphasizing their common bond, their natural bond as Jewish brethren, to soften their minds. And my response to that is, yeah, he's getting ready to soften them up, butter them up a little bit, trying to get them converted. Then he's going to tell them that they crucified the Son of God. It was you guys that did it. So he's trying to convert them, but he sure didn't mince his words, as certain modern-day evangelists might. Acts, verse two, Acts chapter 2, verse 30, since he was a prophet... He knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Now, here, Peter is saying that David was a prophet in writing the psalm, I guess. I'm, just yesterday at my church, uh, a brother was sharing about, he was asking the, 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 the brothers there to list on the board all the Old Testament prophets that we could think of at the, off the top of our head. And somebody mentioned David, and I'm thinking, David? David? Now, since when is David a prophet? Well, the psalms, that's how he's a prophet. I hadn't really thought about it. And here, Peter directly says he was a prophet. And he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. How did he know? Well, of course, that was Second Samuel 7, 14, Nathan's favorite, famous prophet prophecy to David 
that one of his descendants was going to be seated on David's throne. And in fact, this is recorded in Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your descendants on your throne. And that I think that's a reference to that Second Samuel 7:14 prophecy of Nathan to David. So this is well known, this oath about the descendant of David, the Messiah being on the throne. And of course, when Peter's telling the crowd that they were Jews, they probably knew this too. If they were halfway scripturally illiterate, excuse me, halfway scripturally literate on his throne, that's the throne of David. Now, dispensations theologians for a long time have had a hard time saying that Jesus actually sat on the throne at at after his resurrection. I think some of the more progressive dispensations are coming around and saying, yes, David's throne is right now. It's not postponed to a millennial kingdom. So this is talking about Jesus ruling his church. And we need to remember when the prophecy to David that one of his descendants would descend, would take his seat on the throne, that is a literal physical descendant, which Jesus was. He was of the house of David, if you trace his genealogy. And this idea of the throne of David was mentioned by the angel speaking to Mary in Luke 1, verse 32. He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And so Mary knew it even. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be sitting on David's throne, and Peter states that in his Pentecostal sermon. Verse 31, seeing this in advance, seeing that the Messiah would be seated on the throne, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Again, he's quoting that psalm again, which is Psalm Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Now again, the way Peter talks, it makes like it makes it look to me like David knew that he was a prophet. Seeing this in advance, David saw that in advance, so therefore, sounds like he was a prophet. Now I still have in the back of my mind that Peter might have just been saying that David saw it in advance in the sense that he wrote it down in advance, but he didn't actually understand what he was writing. Maybe I don't know if you can make that argument or not, but Peter makes it sound like David was prophesying about the future. And, of course, that doesn't preclude the idea that David might have been speaking about himself also as a type of Jesus the Antitype. But anyway, it seems that David is speaking about the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, which means that Jesus was not left in Hades. He was out of the tomb. The Hades is, is the grave. Jesus was not left in the grave in the tomb. His flesh did not experience decay. In three days you don't decay. He was wrapped in spices. He rose again from the dead. And so we go to verse 32 and 33 in Acts chapter 2. Peter continues, God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Peter says we are witnesses. Well, he was an apostle. He saw it all. He was there at Pentecost too and, and saw it all. He, of course, had seen the resurrected Jesus several times. For example, Resurrection Sunday night, he saw him. For, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians mentions a second a time alone where Peter saw Jesus by himself. And then at the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus appeared to the seven apostles after that second Sunday night, after the resurrection, where there was the miraculous draft of fish, he saw him then. He probably also saw, he saw him at the Ascension back down in, in, uh, in Bethany. So, yeah, he saw it all. And, and so Peter's talking from first-hand experience. He's a witness. Now, the Gospels are very strong, excuse me, that book of Acts is very strong about witnesses, 
Uh, and spe- uh, John, the Gospel of John is big on that too. Testimony and witnesses. Christianity took place in history. It was testified to. It was attested. Here's a quote from John Gill referring to witnesses. Having seen him and heard him and ate and drank and conversed with him since his resurrection. That's exactly right. And Peter says we are all witnesses. All would mean not only the 12 apostles, but the whole 120 who were there when the Holy Spirit fell on the original disciples. Assuming this was in the temple complex with the 120. Again, that's debated. I've already gone through that. That's what I, I, I take the way I take it. And John Gill and Adam Clark say that. This is referring to all the 120 witnesses of this resurrection. Jesus was resurrected to the right hand of God. The right hand of a king was the place of honor and authority. And that's where Jesus was, the right hand of God. Because he was God. He had just as much power and authority as God the Father. And Peter refers to that, the fact that he, the Father, has poured out what you both see in here. Well, what had the Jews there in Jerusalem both seen in here? Well, first, as far as seeing, there's some options. They could have seen the cloven tongues of fire. This is assuming that the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was not done in an upper room, but in the temple. That's debated. They could have seen it if it was there in the temple. If they didn't see that, they could have seen the Christians staggering around as if they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. They could have seen that. And, of course, what they heard was the speaking in unknown tongues. The Holy Spirit that came, that was received from the Father, was is called here in verse 33, the promised Holy Spirit. When was the Holy Spirit promised? Well, in Acts 1-4, we read this. While he was together with them, this was, this was referring to when Jesus was in Jerusalem right after he got resurrected. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Actually, that might have been when they were together at Bethany, I'm sorry, right before the ascension. And Jesus said, hey, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the Father's promise. There's the promise of the Father. We've heard that expression a lot. I used to wonder, why. where did the Father's promise it? Well, Jesus called. Where did the Father promise the Holy Spirit? Well, here Jesus says this is the promise of the Father. John 14:26. But the counsel, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in my Jesus' name. There's the promise of the Father again. And he will teach you all things, remind you of everything I've told you. John 15, 26 through 27. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father. So there Jesus is promising that a counselor is going to come from the Father. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. John 16, 12 through 13. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus is promised the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could really be the promised promise of Jesus as well as the promise of the Father. Promise of the Son as well as the promise of the Father. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. That's in John 16, 12, and 13. We go down to verses 34 and 35 in Acts chapter 2. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord God declared to my Lord, Excuse me, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this verse, this psalm of David's is quoted also in Matthew 22:44. 44. Uh, this is during the uh, Passion Week. He was in an argument with the disciple, with the Pharisees in the temple. And I'm going from my memory here. I don't remember exactly what day it was. I think it was Tuesday. But Jesus is using this to point out that that David was prophesying about the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And, and, he, and, he, and he tripped him up. Well, Peter, doing the same thing here, he's talking to the, the Pentecostal crowd. 
and he is trying to prove that when David is speaking, he can't be talking about himself. He's got to be talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And I'm going to read the verse again, this time supplying the what Lord is being talked about. It's very confusing reading this verse because you don't know whether it's the Lord God or the Lord Jesus. So let, let me do that for you. For it's not David who ascended into the heavens. This is Acts 2.34, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he, David, himself says, The Lord God, the Father, declared to my Lord, this my David's Lord Jesus. So the Lord God, the Father, declared to my declared to David's Lord, my Lord, David's Lord, Jesus, sit at my David God's, the Father's, right hand until I make your Jesus's enemies, your Jesus's footstool. So here we see that David has made two stupendous predictions about the Messiah, according to the NMA Study Bible. First of all, he predicted that the Messiah would be resurrected and ascended. He said it is not David who ascended into the heavens, but and the implication is it's Jesus who ascended into the heavens. And the other prediction that Jesus that David made, that that David had made, was that Jesus would sit at the place of power and authority next to God in heaven. So the two predictions again, Jesus, the Messiah would be resurrected. Uh, David says that, or Peter says that in verse 34 in Acts 2, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens. In other words, it was Jesus that ascended into heavens. And promise number two, prediction number two, Jesus would sit at the place of power and authority next to God in heaven. Peter makes that prediction by quoting David when David said, sit at my right hand. You, Jesus, when David declared to my Lord Jesus, sit at my, David's right hand. So we see now that this Messiah that Peter is preaching is much more than a military hero. He's the, the kind of military hero the Jews were expecting. This is a the God-man, far, far above the status of a convicted, crucified criminal. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the Messiah. Now notice Peter, again quoting David, said that Jesus would make his enemies his footstool. What did that refer to? It was customary for conquerors to put their feet on the next of, on the necks of vanquished leaders. And so Jesus, if you'll picture Jesus standing on the enemies, his enemies with his feet on their necks, little Jesus meek and mild. <laughs> He's got his foot on the necks of his enemies and thus making his enemies their his footstool. And so what as Adam Clark points out, what Peter's doing here, he's showing the Jews that if they continue to fight their Messiah, their Messiah is going to subjugate them by putting his foot upon their neck. Again, Peter didn't mince any words in his evangelistic approach. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Notice that deep conviction there. They came under deep conviction. The NIV says they were cut to the heart. Adam Clark says that Peter's evangelism was powerful, intelligent, consecutive, and interesting discourse, supported everywhere by prophecies and corresponding facts. <laughs> yes, it was, but of course, mostly it was because of the Holy Spirit convicted all these people who had murdered Jesus or who ascended to the murder of Jesus, and now they're cut to the quick, and they're thinking about getting saved. 
This reminds us of the prophecy in Zechariah 12:10. Quote, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. That prophecy was fulfilled literally here by the residents of Jerusalem who are cut to the heart under deep conviction as they cry and they say, Oh my gosh, oh no, we have murdered the Son of God. Now notice that Peter says, You crucified the Lord Messiah. So let, listen. A lot of people say, no, 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 the Jews didn't do it, the Romans did it. Or, no, 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 the Jews didn't do it, we all did it. Well, what they mean by that is the Jews didn't merely do it. Well, that's true. The Jews didn't merely crucify Jesus. The Romans had a part in it, too. But even more important than that is it's not all the Jews that crucified the, the Lord. Not all the Jews. It was that wicked generation of Jews, that phrase that Jesus used over and over again in Matthew 24, Matthew 23, when he pronounced all the woes upon this wicked generation, this evil generation. And in fact, in that prophecy, in that passage in Matthew 23, he says that the curse would be on their children. I believe it's in Matthew 23. The curse will be on their children. That's not on descendants. That word, the Greek word for children is the first generation descendant, the immediate child, not the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. And that's what happened. Those Jews paid for murdering Jesus. That generation of Jews, their children were probably living right around 8070 when the Jews got wiped out. It does not mean there's a curse on the Jews for all time. And unfortunately, that idea has spread through the Catholic Church all during the Middle Ages and People were all the time criticizing the Jews for killing Jesus. Christ killers, they called them. No, it was that wicked generation of Jews. I mean, after all, Jesus himself was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. You can't blame every Jew for what happened to Jesus. But these people were responsible. That's why they came under deep conviction. They were scared because they knew God's judgment was hanging over their heads, as Adam Clark said. And notice how bold Peter was, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. With certainty. There was no shilly-shallying around about Peter's preaching. This man who would deny Jesus three times, now he's out there in front of the hostile crowd, preaching away with total confidence. That's what the Holy Spirit did for him. And then he said, and when Peter said that God had made Jesus the Lord and Messiah, he made Jesus the Messiah, the Lord, despite all of your Jew, you Jews' power and evil plans to the contrary to kill Jesus. It didn't do any good because God has raised him to the right hand of God. All your earthly schemes failed. You didn't kill him. You didn't put him in the grave. You couldn't keep him there. Acts 2.38. Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this word repent, of course, is very important. That's how you get saved. You know, you believe and repent. The definition is, this is a definition from Adam Clark. His mind, purposes, opinions, and inclinations are changed, and that in consequence there is a total change in his conduct. Yes, repentance means to turn away from your sins, and it's a part of faith. If you believe, you're going to turn away from your sins. It's more than just feeling sorry, emotionally sorry. James from Fawcett Brown defines, as a, defines repentance as a change of mind. Now, this idea of repentance is very important in the evangelistic message in the New Testament. For example, John the Baptist, Mark 1.4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
That's repeated in Luke. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You see how repentance and belief go together? Luke 13.3, But no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Unless you repent, you're going to die. Turn or burn, as the fundies like to say. Luke 24.46-47, He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repent. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So repentance is a key part of the gospel message, a key aspect of evangelism. And unfortunately, how often do we hear it today? Oh, Jesus will make you rich. Jesus will make you feel good. Jesus will take care of your problems. A little psycho babble, gooey, gooey stuff. I just heard a friend of mine just went to a Franklin Graham revival meeting or a meeting of some sort with 10,000 people up there in North Carolina. And he said it was just amazing. He kept talking about repentance. He said if you've had an abortion, God's forgiven you. But you you committed murder. You need to repent. While the LGBTQ, LSMFT folks outside were screaming, homophobe, homophobe, and screaming in their tolerant fashion. Of course, you know, when Franklin Graham, I'm sure I wasn't there, but I'm sure what he said, hey, you want to be a homosexual? You, you want to deny the way God made man, male, and female? You want to commit this gross sin, which God had very clearly said was a sin? Uh, you need to repent. Are you going to pay for it? I don't care what the Supreme Court in Obergefell said. I don't care what all the hate crime commissions in Europe say or in England or Canada say. I don't care. We got to repent from our sins. Now let's look at this word baptized. Repent and be baptized. And you, and you will, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the famous Acts 2.38. You've seen the bumper stickers. Believe Acts 2.38. These are done by Church of Christ people who say that you've got to be baptized in water in order to go to heaven. Nonsense. Baloney sausage. There is no such work. That's works righteousness. You've got to do something. I mean, look at the guy on the cross. The guy on the cross, the thief on the cross, was not baptized, but he went to heaven. Are you telling me that somebody confesses all their sins and hadn't made it to the baptismal font yet, and he gets killed in a car wreck, he's going to hell? Please. It's nonsense. But it does sound like it right here. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's happened here is that baptism in the New Testament so closely followed on conversion and repentance and regeneration that the two things were kind of thought of together. I know in China they do that terribly. They really run the baptism and conversion together so much that I'm constantly having to tell Chinese converts, no. You were not saved when you were baptized. I've had them ask me, now tell me when I was saved. So I don't know how that idea got into China, but I'm, I'm telling you, baptism is separate from regeneration. But typically in the New Testament, the pattern was you get saved and then you get baptized. And so when Peter is saying repent and be baptized, he's just saying do this in order. The first thing you do is repent. That means you got saved. Then you get baptized. It doesn't mean you got to be baptized in order to repent. And in order to get saved, it means you get you baptized after you're already saved and you repent. There's a lot of theology in that. If you get into the baptism controversies, I'm not going to get into a lot of that. And then it, then he says, after you repent and are baptized, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, ah, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is that talking about conversion or regeneration? Well, then, then we'll get into another controversy. The Pentecostal charismatic controversy, I am charismatic myself, and so I'm not going to say too much about this except that I believe that this receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially since you go through the, the classic Pentecostal passages in Acts. There's five of them. And that word receive, the Holy Spirit, comes up quite a bit. 
when they were subsequent to conversion, received the gift of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, either implicitly or or explicitly or impliedly. And so therefore, when I see that word receive, I think baptism of the Holy Spirit. John Gill, who as far as I know was not a charismatic or Pentecostal, said that that this receiving of the Holy Spirit is not for regeneration. He says, quote, not the grace of the Spirit as a regenerator and sanctifier, for they had that already, and is necessary as previous to baptism. In other words, the way Gill takes this, it says, look, if you're going to repent and be baptized, that means you're saved. And if you're saved, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit after you're saved. And I think he's exactly right. I think that's what he means, even though he's not charismatic. He's not Pentecostal. And, of course, Peter is referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit that fell in Acts 2 that all the crowd there saw. He said, look, you think that was cool? You can have it, too. I've said that to many people 2,000 years later. Hey, you think that's cool what happened in Acts 2? You can have that, too. You can receive power to witness. You can prophesy and speak in tongues. And it's really amazing. People who hadn't read John MacArthur yet seem to always do that. They pray. They get baptized in the Spirit. They speak in tongues. And then they run into John, John MacArthur types and tell them that what they did was psychological or wasn't really true or was demonic and such nonsense as that. But let's go back to this idea of baptism. How important is that? I mentioned that they they think it's very important in China. So important that I had to keep telling them that, hey, baptism doesn't get you saved. But I started thinking, I said, you know, we don't put enough importance on it in America. We just don't. In the early church, I mean, the pattern is very clear. Baptism was very important. Let me, let me, and just to give you the feel for that, let me read you some scriptures sequentially here. Mark 1, 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness. That's a different baptism, but the same idea as John's baptism. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, this is Jesus on that mountain in Galilee before we went down to Bethany near Jerusalem to, to ascend into heaven and he gave the great commission. And the last part of that great commission was baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Go make disciples of all nations. Acts 13, excuse me, Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogues, of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. That's the pattern. You believe and you get baptized. Acts 2, 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized. Acts 10, 47 through 48, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? That, of course, was... Uh, at Cornelius' house, Holy Spirit fell on, on the crowd right as Peter was preaching the sermon there. And he commanded them, to be, commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you see a clear pattern, belief and then baptism, belief and baptism. And in Acts 2.38, that was the pattern that Peter's talking about. Repent and be baptized. Not don't be baptized so that you can get saved, but repent, believe, get saved, and then get baptized. So it is important. It's important that we get baptized even if that baptism is not that which gets us saved and regenerated. Now notice how is this baptism to be done in Acts 2.38. Be baptized, each of you, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of the God the Father, not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Father and the Holy Spirit are left out here. That does not mean that contradicts the typical full baptismal formula that's given in Matthew in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now there could be a reason why Peter only mentions Jesus here. He wants to distinguish John's baptism from Jesus' baptism. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea, so it, so he makes a point of mentioning Jesus. 
Or it could be, according to John Gill, that Peter is emphasizing now the exaltation of Jesus, whom the Jews crucified, so he's emphasizing Jesus. Or, in my view, it's just a shorthand way of saying, baptized in the name of Jesus, Jesus is God, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What difference does it make? And in fact, it really doesn't, to be honest with you, in my humble opinion. Now, I remember one time I was baptizing somebody, or actually, I think it was with somebody else who was baptizing somebody, and they said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And I leaned over and said, say the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I just wanted to be sure, you know. So I, I wouldn't get in a too big a snit over how you baptize people, although, of course, like everything else, there's controversy involved. And I think one reason why you want to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is because of these Jesus-only Pentecostal Unitarian heretics who deny the Trinity. They're modalist and they don't believe in the Trinity, and to emphasize the Trinity, you say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you take care of that nonsense. Acts 2.39, for the Peter, Peter continues to speak, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise, of course, is the promise of the Father, the promise of the Son, the promised Holy Spirit. And he's saying, hey, you can do the same thing these 120 people that were staggering around like they were drunk full of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. I promise this for you, for you and your children. In other words, not just for you, but your descendants. I'm not sure if that Greek word there means descendants or just your first generation children, but it doesn't matter. The, prom the, the point is it's not just for them. It's for other people too, including their descendants. And it's, this is ironic given that they had called a curse upon their children when they crucified Jesus. May his blood be on our hands, on our heads, and also those of our children. They said when they crucified him, that famous curse they called on themselves. But hey, no, now there's promise for the, for the children of the Jews. And all who were far off, I take that to mean Gentiles, were far off from the Jewish polity, the Jewish people. In other words, this promise for the, of the Holy Spirit is for everybody, Gentiles too. It could be far off chronologically or far off geographically as well as far, as well as far off I don't want to say racially. As far, it could, in addition to it referring to Gentiles who are far off from the Jews, it could re refer to people who are far off geographically or far off chronologically. I use that verse a lot. I mean, hey, if that verse is for people for, that are far off, that means somebody 2,000 plus years can get the same promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, get baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues and all that. No problem. And now we move to Acts 2, verse 40. Peter continues, and with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. This corrupt generation sounds like what Jesus called that corrupt generation. He called them that wicked generation, that evil generation, seven or eight times in the woes. Woe upon this evil generation in Matthew 23. So when people say the Jews crucified Jesus, what they really more precisely mean is this corrupt generation of Jews crucified Jesus. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders. Now, when Jesus said, be, I mean, when Peter said, be saved from this corrupt generation, he could actually be talking about physically saved because the Christians who believed in the gospel message in Jerusalem escaped from the Romans during the Jewish War, 66, at the end of 66 AD, when Cestus surrounded the city. The Roman general Cestus, then he withdrew unexpectedly. The fanatical Jews inside of Jerusalem who were keeping the Christians bottled up in Jerusalem. They went chasing Cestus, and then the Jews in Jerusalem, having heard Jesus' previous warning in the Olivet Discourse, that when you see the abomination which causes desolation, i.e. the Roman army, surrounding Jerusalem, 
will then flee. And they did flee, and they were saved physically. Although Peter might have meant being be saved spiritually from this corrupt generation. I'm not really sure which he was true. Of course, both is true. Acts 2.41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And, of course, when they were baptized, that means they believed. They accepted, they received, they believed. 3,000 people the first day. That's the beginning of the church. Now, notice that it says those who accepted. Not everybody accepted. They never do. It's never 100%. Even with Peter's incredibly powerful sermon, not everyone believed. It doesn't matter how good a job one does witnessing. Some will be obstinate. And I'll tell you, Peter did a good job, but he didn't get them all. Now, a lot of people who don't like the idea of baptism by immersion, they say, well, 3,000 people, you can't, you can't baptize 3,000 people in one day if, if you have to dunk them under the water. Well, first of all, there were plenty of cisterns all around Jerusalem where they could get water. Here's a quote from John Gill, in baptized, referring to baptized, quote, In water, by immersion, for which there was great conveniency in Jerusalem and in the temple where the apostles now were, in the city of Jerusalem, in private houses, they had their baths for purifications, by immersions, as in the case of menstruous gonorrheas and other defilements, by touching unclean persons and things which were very frequent. Frequent, so that a digger of cisterns for such uses and others was a business in Jerusalem. So they had cistern diggers incorporated going around digging cisterns. There was plenty of water they could baptize people. There were plenty of people to do the work. You had 12 apostles plus the 70 who were on the missionary journey in the, during the Perean ministry right before Jesus' crucifixion. You put, that's what, 82 people baptizing people? That comes out to about six and seven, maybe 30 people, between six and 30 people apiece having baptized. You can baptize 30 people in one day. It doesn't take that long. There were plenty of places to do the work. Uh, some people even suggest that they use the ten labors in the molten sea in the temple. Uh, I don't know if the apostles would have access to the temple, so I doubt that, but they were the private systems that I've already mentioned, but plus there were natural pools, pools in Jerusalem. Pool of Bethesda up there near the Sheep Gate on the northeastern corner. The Pool of Siloam on the southeastern corner of Jerusalem. And also Kidron Valley, maybe. And maybe the Upper Springs of Gihon. Maybe. I don't know if they could get to those or not. But there was water everywhere. They could baptize. And they had plenty of time to do the baptism. Peter started preaching at 9 o'clock in the morning. Probably finished about 10 o'clock that night. That gave the disciples about eight hours to do the work. Excuse me. 10 o'clock in the morning. He started preaching at 9 o'clock in the morning, finished about 10 o'clock in the morning, probably another 8, uh, probably the sun goes down at 6, so that gives you 8 hours that day to do the baptism. That's plenty of time. And by the way, the verse doesn't even say all the baptisms were done in one day. It said those who accepted his message were baptized, comma. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. It says 3,000 people were added. It didn't say they were all baptized that day. That's just an assumption. Even with the assumption it could easily be done, but if it can't be done, well, okay, they weren't all baptized in one day. That is no argument against baptism by immersion, which is the scriptural pattern. I'm sorry, Presbyterians. The equities are not in your favor on that issue. Acts 2.42, one of my favorite verses, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, when I was in China and had nowhere to go to church, I said, we're going to sit here in my apartment, my wife and I, Linda, we're going to sit here and we're going to do four things or three things, really. Okay, four things. It depends on how you slice and dice Acts 2.42. We're going to do the apostles teaching. We're going to have a Bible study. We're going to have fellowship in the breaking of bread. 
which is communion, and we're going to pray. And doing that, I got two little churches started. It lasted for a couple of years in each case, and I had a church to go to. My wife had a church to go to, and it was wonderful, better than a lot of churches here in America where you sit and listen to boring sermons. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, that included everything that Jesus taught, of course, because the apostles learned from Jesus. And notice that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't do this thing like, well, we listen to Jesus, but we don't care about the apostles. What they taught was just their opinion. Nonsense. We don't obey Jesus, but not the apostles. That's a false dichotomy. We obey them both. The apostles had the authority of Christ, 2 Corinthians 13.10. This is why, Paul says, I am writing these things while absent, that while I am there, I will not use severity in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me. The authority the Lord gave me. The apostles had the authority of Jesus Christ for building up and not for tearing down. 1 Thessalonians 4.2. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Commands. Now, it's true that Paul's command authority was very gentle. A lot of times he said, I'm with you as a nursing mother. And he kind of suggested things and kind of he did more exhortation, encouragement. I know that. You can't ever find where an elder of a church commanded anybody to do anything it was always leadership by example with the elders with apostles you can find some they had a little bit more authority because they were starting our churches at the beginning less maturity but at any rate you don't find any of this stuff well we don't believe what paul said because he's just an apostle nonsense well that's just paul's opinion nonsense paul's opinion is an apostolic opinion and he had the authority of jesus christ so we're supposed to obey it all right now this fellowship now, the way the Holman Christian Study Bible has this verse punctuated, and remember, there are no punctuation marks in the Greek. The Holman Christian Study Bible has it punctuated apostles' teaching, comma, fellowship, comma, breaking of bread, comma, and prayer. So you got four things. Well, let's just assume they're right for the, for the time being. I don't think it is, but I will stick with it. Fellowship, of course, means koinonia. That's the word that translates koinonia, fellowship. It's the sharing of lives with one another. So not only did they teach academically, it was more than just academics. It was sharing your lives with one another to the breaking of bread. Now the question here is, does that mean they ate together ordinary meals or was it they ate together the Lord's Supper? I'm convinced it's the Lord's Supper. And I'll I'll give you some other opinions first. The NIV Study Bible doesn't agree with that. They say that it was just ordinary meals. Adam Clark is agnostic. He says it's hard to say what it was. Ordinary meals or the Lord's Supper. Whoops, I, I, mis, I misstated the NIV Study Bible suggests ordinary meals, but they say more probably it's the Lord's Supper. And Gill said he prefers it's the Lord's to say that it's the Lord's Supper. So I, I would say that the majority opinion is for the Lord's Supper, and that's good because that's what I believe too. Notice that bread was broken at this Lord's in the breaking of bread. That was a technical term, by the way, for the Lord's Supper. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10:16, the bread that we break is it not sharing in the body of Christ? And that's talking about that's obviously talking about the Lord's Supper because it talks about the cup of blessing that we give thanks for. Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. So breaking of bread is a probably a technical term referring to the Lord's Supper. Notice that bread was broken. That means they ate a full meal because that's what you do when you break bread. It doesn't mean you're just breaking off a chip of a soda cracker. The Lord's Supper was a full meal. It was not a sip and a chip. Not a shot glass of wine, a little soda cracker. No, 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 no. It was a full meal. Now, one more argument to say that this breaking of bread was the Lord's Supper is because of the Greek. I've got the Greek here. It's te koinonia te klase to artu, which means literally the, 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 well, let's see, how can I say this? Give attention to, 
or devoted themselves to koinonia, that's dative, to koinonia, and then te classe, in fellowship of bread. Excuse me, in breaking of bread. So they devoted themselves to fellowship in breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to fellowship in the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to communion in the breaking of bread, because koinonia translated fellowship is the same word that's translated for communion. And so the comma is not there in the original, so that's what it sounds like to me. They voted themselves to to koinonia in the communion. They devoted themselves to fellowship in the breaking of bread and communion. The last thing, either the third or the fourth, depending on how you punctuate the verse, is prayers. NIV just has prayer. The funny thing about it is the prayers. I don't know why it says the prayers. Then I, the Jameson Foster Brown says it's probably stated seasons of prayers. So they set a set time for prayers, and so they devoted themselves to the prayers that they had set up at a certain time. I don't know if that's true or not. So we'll just take the NIV translation and say prayer. I'm not going to worry about that. ESV has the prayers also. They put that that article in the Greek is not necessary. So I don't know why they say the prayers. That's that's an interesting thing. But at any rate. To summarize this verse, Acts shows the importance of prayer, both public and private. They devoted themselves. That means they gave their whole soul to it. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Acts 1.14, all of these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's in the upper room where they chose the Matthias as a disciple to replace Judas. Acts 3.1, now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. They probably went up at prayer at that hour for a reason, so they could pray too. Maybe. I don't know. That's a speculation. Acts 6, 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. Acts 10, 4. Looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, What is it, Lord? The angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity had come up as a memorial before God. Acts 10, 31. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Acts 16, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. Acts 16, 16. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. They were on their way to specifically do something, which was to pray. I'm telling you, folks. And you look in the Gospels, how many times Jesus taught us to pray? Praying is a big, big deal. We need to pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop. Acts 2.43, Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Of course, wonders and signs are for evangelistic purposes, and the Gospel was spreading like crazy. The fear is, is probably awe, like in reverence. NIV study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that, but it could be literal fear according to Adam Clark, but by the people there who were now realizing that killing the Messiah has effects. There's there's consequences. I don't know. I think it's fear came over everyone in the sense of awe and reverence. Acts two forty four through forty five. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as everyone had a need. Now this is the famous in common verse, this is not communism. It was all done voluntarily, as we'll see in the case with Ananias. It was all done voluntarily. There was no government or no ecclesiastical authority forcing them to share their goods. This is a one-off situation in Acts. You never see anybody ever in the Church of Christ sharing their goods in common. So this is not a pattern. I believe in patterns. I believe in following the patterns in Acts, but this ain't one of them. 
So now the question is, well, why did they? Why, in this particular ca case, did they hold their stuff in common? Before we get into that, let's point out that this in common practice was also, not practice, I should say, this in common, the, thing, the, the holding things in common was also mentioned in Acts 4.32. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Drop down two verses to Acts 4.34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Now, what special circumstances led to this sharing in common? Well, first of all, you had a bunch of Pentecostal visitors, visitors for the Passover feast, not Pentecostal, yeah, for the Feast of Pentecost. They had all come to Jerusalem, and of course they had no settled homes, they had no settled income. And then something special happened in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. Well, that means now they're away from their homes even longer than they had planned, as Adam Clark points out. And they are away from their home in the middle of a hostile population because the Jews hated Christians. They, so they would need a special help because of the Jewish population who would mock and persecute them and maybe make it hard for them to buy food. So this sharing in common was really a means of self-defense. I saw a movie the other day called A.D., I think, on Netflix where the, it had the Christians meeting in a big community outside the city where they'd be safe and they were all sharing their stuff in common there. And if you think about it, that's probably what they did. I, I don't know, but... I don't know how they really hold things in common in the city quite so easy to be easier in a, in a camp-like situation. Now, also, as John Gill points out, they knew from the Olivet Discourse that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And so the people who were selling their houses to distribute their money to the poor Christians there, they knew that, hey, what's the point of keeping a house in Jerusalem? It's all going to go down. It's a doomed city. Why would I want to keep my house here? It's all going up in smoke. <laughs> now, I mentioned that this was a voluntary sharing. It was not forced by the government or by anybody, not by the church. Acts 5.4, this is when Ananias cheated the church to try to keep back the proceeds from a house he sold. This is what Peter says to Ananias. Wasn't it the property yours while you, Ananias, possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? In other words, wasn't it yours? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? In other words, it's yours, Ananias, until you gave it to the church. And then, when you lie about that, when you stole from God, of course, Ananias lied about it and got whacked by the Lord, and he was carried out to be buried. So Adam Clark points out Ananias didn't have to share the proceeds of his land sale. His, and I'm saying that his sin was that he lied about it. it. His sin was not that he didn't share the land. He didn't have to share the land. That was voluntary. But once you lie about it to the Holy Spirit, ooh, that's bad business. Now, Adam Clark makes an interesting observation that is that there were communitarian practices normally done during festivals, not just here at this special Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, but at every annual Pentecost or, or any other public religious feast, there was a sort of community of goods. No man at such time hired houses or beds in Jerusalem. All were lent gratis by the owners. This is he And Adam Clark quotes a rabbi that said that. The same may, may be well supposed of their ovens, their cauldrons, their tables, their spits, and other utensils. Also, provisions of water were made for them at the public expense. So these pilgrims were a big deal to the religious authorities of Jerusalem and to the population of Jerusalem, so they took care of the pilgrims. And so the, the Christian church was doing that plus more. They sold their houses and lands. The other Jews there that were helping out the, the Jewish pilgrims, they just kind of lent them their utensils or gave them a place to save. But the church went even further. 
It's like a family, Jameson Fawcett Brown said. A family has all things in common with the property administered by the Father. In the church's case, it was by the apostles. Now, it says that they were all together, and that's how that movie A.D. had them all together in one camp in one place at one time. Gill denies that. Clark suggests it might be. It certainly can't be a house that held them all at one time. 3,000 people aren't going to stay in one house. But, you know, it might not mean all in one place geographically. It might mean they were all together in mind. John Gill actually believed this, believes this, and Adam Clark leans to that. They're of one mind and one judgment. They're in one mind as far as doctrine goes, as far as their affections went. I don't think so. I think it's talking about geographically. They were all together. Verse 46 and 47 of chapter 2, and we'll finish up. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people, and every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Now, this meeting together was probably, I remember doing a study on this one time, probably as for evangelistic purposes. If you go through, uh, they were evangelizing in the temple complex, and then they were breaking bread from house to house. That's where they were having the church meetings in private. You have your church meeting out there in the public in the temple complex, well, that might be a little hard to do out there in the open with a bunch of persecutors. But evangelism is a different story. You're, when you're evangelizing a hostile environment, there's a lot of arguing going on and back and forth and so forth. So I think that's what it is. They met together to evangelize in the temple complex, and they broke bread, which, remember, is communion. They had communion from house to house. That's where the early church met, house to house. That's where I would love to meet and have for 25 years. Not now, because, unfortunately, everybody's got to go run into the pews, run into the pews, listen to the sermon, listen to 200 decibel music, and look at the black ceiling and the and the PowerPoint right there in the middle where everybody can see it, where all the announcements are done and all the hoopla that you didn't see that in the early church. You saw them meeting from house to house, eating their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Isn't that interesting? They met house to house, and yet they managed to expand. They managed to spread the word, even though they were meeting house to house. How many times have you heard, oh, you just believe in you four and no more? And I say, well, hey, in the early church... It was house to house, and yet they were evangelizing like crazy because they were full of the zeal of the Holy Spirit. They were full of joy. They were humble. They praised God all the time. They they prayed all the time. They had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching all the time. They devoted themselves to fellowship. You can't go wrong, folks, if you have church like that. So the next time your pastor starts talking about his budget and his big building he wants to build and where he's going to buy the land and get get over there in the nice side of town, hey, go back to Acts 2, 46 and 47, read it, and get back to basics and get out of that church. Let him, let him borrow his own money. Notice that these early Christians meeting house to house and also meeting in the temple complex, which I say is for evangelism, they had favor with all the people. People were coming. The, they overcame all that hostility at first. Not I shouldn't say all of it, of course, because the church ended up getting persecuted by the Jews. There were, a lot, you know, there was always people that don't believe, but there was so many people that were coming in that it was the, the tide seemed to be swinging. And this, remember, is shortly after Pentecost. And on that day of Pentecost, remember, they mocked the Christians. They say, ah, oh, the 120 who were filled with the Holy Spirit, they're drunk. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're drunk. They're a bunch of drunkards. 
this meeting in the temple complex, that stopped relatively soon, of course, because the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but the house-to-house worship did not. It lasted all the way to roughly 300 AD until right around that time, old Constantine gave a bunch of old pagan temples to the church, and the church got hooked up with the state and started getting some subsidies from the state, and they got all those buildings, and they started making the buildings, and pretty soon you got the Catholic Church. If you like the Catholic Church, we're fine. I don't. I prefer to meet in homes and simplicity of the gospel. And you can't beat it. You just cannot beat it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Acts chapter 2. And verse 47 finishes it off. I hope you turn into our next audio. In which we will hear that Peter and John heal the lame man in the temple. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have given thee. We'll talk about that in the next audio. I hope you tune in for that. And I hope you enjoyed this one.